In today's competitive e-commerce environment, it's never been more important to earn and maintain the trust of your customers. Merchant Fraud Journal's To Catch a Fraudster podcast is supported by SIFT, the leader in digital trust and safety. SIFT empowers companies to stop fraud and grow without risk. Visit SIFT.com assessment to schedule a consultation with SIFT's trust and safety architects. Industry experts who have decades of fraud fighting experience at companies like Facebook, Square, and Google. They'll help create a custom plan for your business with an emphasis on technology, organizational structure, and process. Visit sift.com slash assessment today. And we're live. Carlos, thanks for joining us on the podcast, man. Thanks, Brad. Nice to be here. So we'll get all the good stuff out of the way. Tell us who you are, where you're from, who you represent, and then we'll jump right in. Sure. So my name is Carlos Palma. I am a product manager for DLoco. Uh, that's a payment processor in, uh, uh, based from Uruguay. And my areas of focus include off-road prevention solutions, uh, amongst other, other products as well. Uh, so let me just give a quick intro about DLoco because uh, uh, people might not be familiar uh, with us. We are a payments processor that focuses on emerging markets. Uh, and we are a fairly new company. We started operations in 2016, uh, five years ago. And we've so far we have expanded into the whole of Latin America, Africa, and uh, Asia uh, as well. Um, so we have a, a basic premise is that we have a single API uh, where uh, pro, uh, merchants can process payments with us and also try to give them uh, a full solution with regards to uh, the services, which includes uh, also fraud prevention. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it having you. And this is a huge topic in our community, getting into emerging markets. It's something that merchants have a lot of pain with. It can be really scary, but there's a lot of opportunity there. And as we all know, the false positive declines are killer, killer, killer to merchants. Absolutely. So this is definitely a huge issue. So we really appreciate you being here to shed some light on it. So let's jump right in. Tell me some of your craziest fraud attempts and stories. What do you got for us today? Okay, so I have an interesting story uh, to tell about some of the atypical payment methods. So uh, we might be very familiar with the types of fraud committed for, uh, for cards, uh, mostly because uh, cards issue chargebacks and that's what often merchants are most concerned about. But there are other ways to pay as well. So in some markets, say for example in Brazil, uh, there's a very popular payment method called boleto, which is the cash payment method. Uh, so there's, a, there's one type of fraud that we started seeing in 2020, uh, right after uh, COVID started, um, that uh, affected this type of payment method. So uh, a boleto, in essence, is uh, the translation of boleto is actually a ticket. And uh, what a boleto looks like is it looks just like an invoice uh, with a recipient barcode and uh, the amount that uh, the person has to pay. And uh, the person that receives a boleto uh, when they want to purchase a good, the, the merchant would send them a boleto and they would print that ticket and go out to an ATM, uh, a branch facility, a post office, a uh, supermarket, and just pay that ticket there and then. So being a push payment method, it's generally considered to be very safe uh, for a merchant because there's no chargeback mechanism. And, and it's uh, the payer themselves who pay with cash. 
So we started seeing this type of fraud uh, that affected a very particular type of merchant, which is uh, the advertisement platform. So merchants that sell ads in the platform, they would issue those boletos for somebody to uh, credit their accounts in these platforms. Uh, and the way that the scheme worked is that a fraudster would uh, sell an item uh, in these platforms, uh, let's say a, a set of pots and pans for $69.99. Uh, and what they would do is uh, if when their victim wanted to buy that item from them, uh, they would send a boleto uh, to them so that they could pay in cash uh, at the supermarket. And when that boleto was issued, uh, it, of course, had as a recipient the name of the advertisement company. Uh, so the person uh, knowing that they've seen the ad uh, there, uh, they thought it was legitimate uh, or some of them did. And when they went to pay, of course, they were crediting the fraudster's account and not actually paying for the items. So the fraudster had a, had a way of getting uh, that money to fund other activities in that ad platform. So uh, it was uh, a, a tricky one to find out as well, because at the time, uh, of course, when, uh, when these people used to uh, pay for those products and they did not receive uh, their products, uh, very few of them reported that issue at the time. And we started hearing about that issue uh, mostly because of our partners. Uh, the banks that we worked with uh, sent out some notices saying, hey, we're observing this type of behavior. Um, so we, we worked with, very closely with, uh, with our merchants to try to find out what uh, the patterns were in this case. And uh, there are definitely some, some patterns that merchants can see in this case. Like, uh, for example, uh, when those uh, boletos were issued, uh, they were generally issued with prices that were ref reflected kind of typical prices for an item. $69.99 would be an example, right? right? And it's not a normal amount to credit if you're crediting your own account for uh, for using, uh, for, for just for credits. So you would normally top up your account using like 50 or 100, whereas in this case, the number was uh, very different. Mm -hmm. So we start looking into patterns like that, people issuing a lot of boletos with these odd numbers. Uh, and working closely with the merchants to explain this behavior to them uh, so that they can take actions on their side as well and detect uh, related fraud-like behavior on their side to that, so that we can bring these, uh, these actors down. So, I want to so, jump in here real quick on this idea of culture because I think when merchants are talking about selling into high-risk environments, one of the things that really worries them is that the countries or the areas, the jurisdictions, they don't have strong what we would call rule of law cultures. There's there's not the same respect for going by the book in general. Obviously, there are fraudsters everywhere. But as a general societal yeah. rule, you'll see countries that are considered to be low lower rule of law countries. And Brazil is always at the top of this list for some reason. And yes. it's interesting to me when you're talking about this because to me, when you are... When you were originally describing this method, I was thinking, oh, what could go wrong with this? Because it just yeah. seems like when you start to detach and you have extra steps and you're just creating more access points for nefarious activity. So if you could speak a little bit to the merchants out there about this idea of rule of law countries, because yeah. it's definitely a thing, certainly a thing in merchants' mind. I think certainly fair to say that we do see some of these crazier payment schemes going on. But at the same time, I know that the vast majority of orders that are coming out of Brazil are perfectly legitimate. 
And so yeah. can you talk to the merchants out there listening, how they should be approaching this idea with caution that when you go into these markets, it is true to say that they are higher risk than say a UK or a Canada, but at the same time that it shouldn't be an overriding concern that keeps them out and how they can square that circle in their own emotional mind. Yeah, absolutely. So there, there are certainly ways to approach this uh, this problem, and that's what we try to help our merchants with uh, because they they always have the same concerns. So you mentioned it uh, very well. Like uh, these markets are generally known to have much higher fraud levels, particularly if you're talking about Brazil and Mexico and Latin America. Uh, these are countries with uh, huge opportunities, but at the same time, they're very well known to have a higher fraud rate. So a typical fraud rate in, in uh, some of these countries might be above 3%, which is very high in comparison to other countries, uh, in, let's say the US, uh, UK, Canada, and so on. Uh, the reasons for this, of course, uh, are multiple. Um, there's uh, much higher poverty and social inequality in these regions and a higher levels of criminality. Uh, and at the same time, there's very lax regulation and enforcement. So um, there is a general sense that uh, people try to scrape by uh, on the day to day. And if you try to get and swindle something out of somebody, uh, some people might take that uh, with, with certain level of pride. Uh, so that's kind of what drives uh, these higher fraud levels. But at the same time, we're talking about uh, the the remaining percentage of transactions that are perfectly legitimate. 97%. Yes, exactly. And, <laughs> and, and these are very, very big markets. So uh, what we try to do with, with our merchants is to work and collaborate in, in explaining to them how to approach these uh, these markets, taking a look at their business models and trying to figure out what's the best solution for them in terms of their payment mix, in terms of uh, what payments methods are they going to offer, the types of controls that they need to have in place. And also, uh, we need to work closely with them, uh, especially if they uh, have their own fraud solutions in place. So give me uh, so, some of the best practices there that you tell people. Obviously, every case is unique. Every merchant's unique, I understand. Yeah. That. But in general, what are some of the things that you tell people in a concrete way that they can do to sell safely in these jurisdictions? Yeah. So the first one, which is a, like the, the general and very essential recommendation for all merchants, is that they uh, to make them understand and see that, we, uh, that they can work with us uh, as a partner to control fraud. Uh, and that they... Uh, should try to send us as much information and data uh, as possible, the data that they collect and in some markets even uh, ask them for additional data that they can request in some cases uh, so that we can uh, work using our own internal methods uh, and our analysts can also help out in, in working with fraud. Um, we also do uh, give some, out some recommendations to merchants who have their own fraud prevention solutions. Uh, so merchants often have their own fraud teams and have uh, tools in place, which are, there are a lot of great tools out there, uh, but some of these tools may, or their configurations may not be well adapted to uh, entering these new countries. So it's always very useful to take a look uh, together at what they have configured on their end and see if there's uh, any points that we can complement on our side or any recommendations that we have uh, so that they can have uh, a good configuration, especially if they're considering launching in a new market uh, with a with a an important marketing campaign, for example, uh, just taking a look and, and making sure that uh, there's nothing uh, or 
nothing on their end that might leave them out of a large segment of the market. Right. So can you give me some insight into the types of conversations that you have with people? And I'm getting specifically at the mm-hmm. merchants out there that are listening that are hesitant to get into these markets and they have their reasons. And as you said, the fraud rates are higher than others. But yeah. if you can get to some of the emotional, maybe anonymously behind the curtain conversations that you've had with people for anyone who's out there listening that's on the fence and needs some convincing when people come to you and they say yeah you know carlos i I hear you man i know brazil's a a huge market i know people have a lot of money over there but i just i can't risk my business's ability to process credit cards on selling to that market i've worked real hard Mm -hmm. to get to where i am right now and so I just would rather not. What What do you tell those people? Okay, so uh, what what we usually tell is uh, there are definitely ways to get around this. So, uh, for example, if you have if your mind is very set on, or if you're thinking about credit cards, why don't you consider alternative payment methods as well? Uh, because it, it it is true that these uh, payment methods uh, would have uh, less higher uh, less fraud rates, uh, such as Pauleto, for example. Uh, I mean, it, it, ex- with the exception of that case that I mentioned, uh, in general, these are much safer methods than using uh, credit cards for payment. So if your model allows for that, then definitely that should be top of your mind. Uh, have uh, the ability to offer uh, alternative payment methods, uh, and then you can control on the credit card side. If you want to offer credit cards, you can have uh, you, you can control your, your fraud controls uh, so that you're comfortable with that level and have that those alternative payment methods as a fallback to capture uh, what has been, um, maybe if there are any false positives, you can capture some of those using these alternative payment methods. So that's, uh, that's uh, the essential recommendation. And the other recommendation that's, uh, we often have a lot of discussions, especially with some merchants from the States, when, which are not very familiar with this concept, uh, which is around the document, uh, which, of course, the, the, the ID, the personal ID. Um, so this is a data point that's considered personal, uh, personally identifiable information, right? Uh, and companies are very sensitive about asking this uh, to their customers. Uh, because especially for a company that works in the United States, uh, who are familiar with the issues around social security number, not everybody wants to share the social security number online. Now, there's a very big difference between the social security number in the US and uh, document IDs in some of these countries. Uh, so for example, in Brazil, uh, for merchants who want to operate with, uh, in Brazil and uh, need to do cross-border payments, uh, the document is actually a required uh, information for uh, that payment to be made. So that's actually required. A merchant needs to ask for that document um, so, so that they can process that payment. and. Uh, Brazilian customers are actually used to that. Uh, it's very common for uh, a person in Latin America to share their document uh, when they're making a purchase. So that's uh, we do have some conversations with our merchants about this topic because it's uh, they they might have some policies on their side uh, that when they go into Latin America. Um, they need to understand that, that in these markets, it is possible to request for this data point, and it's a very usual, uh, very useful data point, uh, especially to uh, detect uh, trustworthy transactions uh, from uh, people who have uh, provided the right details and have positive uh, payment information from other sites or other merchants. We can use that information to uh, allow these payments to go through. Yeah, I think that's really good advice because oftentimes we find that merchants really 
they don't do all the homework that they need to do on that end because you just make certain cultural assumptions. And I think that that's normal for most people. If you're operating, born, raised, your store, everything is in the United States, you just assume that that's the way that the world does business. Certainly, Americans mm-hmm. are notorious for thinking that everybody operates the way that America operates, I think, <laughs> than even some other cultures. So it's definitely a good point to make sure as a merchant, you're understanding what the jurisdiction is like that you're going to. And it's very simple to think, oh, well, Brazil has a lot of fraud in it, but that's only the surface. You really need to get down and do the same thing that you would do in other areas about what different industries experience, Mm -hmm. what different areas of the country experience, et cetera, et cetera. You can't just treat it as a monolith and you really have to understand where you're operating. I think that's absolutely good advice. So next story, let's, let's move on. Let's hear, uh, let's hear the next story. Okay. Um, so another story that I have, and, uh, this is kind of a mixture between credit card and, uh, and alternative payment methods is, uh, another scheme that we found happening in, in Colombia. Um, so this was for a mentioned in the ride sharing space that had a, a business model where, the drivers would pay for credit uh, and use that credit in, in in their account to get rides, right? So uh, the drivers would need to pay up front uh, for uh, the merchant's fee, and then the merchant would allow them to get rides. So they would be paying to work, essentially. And uh, of course, because of that model, it's, uh, it's generally a low risk model because uh, the drivers are uh, workers. So um in in most countries uh th- this merchant has uh, very low chargeback rates but suddenly so, the, so uh, i just want to so the model here is that the the driver i guess is paying this company a set amount of money and then that company is bringing them customers through their app and then they're charging exactly. those customers separately okay no like the drivers and actually, are charging those customers exactly exactly okay. so so gotcha. it, it allows the drivers to ask for cash uh for the rides Right. Gotcha. Uh, so it's 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 a, uh, it's a very different model to what we used to uh, for Uber or other other companies. Right. Uh, so in this case, what what was happening is that in uh, the, the the merchant did successfully launch in a lot of countries, but then uh, when we looked at uh, Colombia, the merchant was having um, a, a bit higher char- uh, chargeback rates uh, than we would see in other markets. So uh, we eventually found out what was going on in this case, which is that um, there's a very uh, popular like scheme uh, in in Latin America, which is a reseller model, uh, where uh, somebody would uh, resell services or resell products using a stolen or a credit card, and then it, uh, th- those uh, products would be charged back. Uh, in this case, what was going on was that um, in Colombia, um, it's not very common for somebody to have a credit card. There's a large segment of the population that does not have access to a credit card. So if a driver wanted to credit uh, or top up their account, they would go to somebody who had a credit card and that person would then top up uh, accounts for multiple drivers. Of course, that person could use that credit card and could be perfectly legitimate or it could uh, be a stolen credit card or that person could then later charge back uh, the company for that amount. So um, it was actually very simple to detect. Uh, Of course, we would see a pattern where the same credit card was being used to top up multiple accounts. Um, So we identify those uh, those credit cards or uh, and and those users and and could easily blacklist them uh, and set up velocities to control for that. Uh, And yeah, the the good thing about this is that 
Um, there was, in the end, there was no impact on sales traffic because uh, drivers would still need to drive and they, they, they still earned uh, money through uh, this company. Uh, and in the end, uh, the, the restrictions that we uh, put up in place uh, did not affect the sales uh, traffic for that merchant. And it also highlights the importance of having that alternative payment method. So right. the so drivers what's, could. What's interesting to me there is take us down the rabbit hole a little bit of analyzing the data points in these types of markets that are maybe operating in a bespoke way where everything is not exactly the way it would be other places. Do you recommend merchants to try different data point combinations almost not at random, but to think of different data point combinations and try to figure that out and move along that way? How do you, how do you suggest that you change your data analytics in order to mm -hmm. maximize your protection in these types of scenarios. And then also I'm curious, this one seems that it was fairly basic as these things go, but we are all, we are all in favor as a publication of the idea of the human fraud analyst still being a thing. And yeah. so I'm curious to hear from you what you think the balance is between having machine learning algorithms look at these kinds of things and just set it and run it and let it go and having mm -hmm. a human behind these things trying to put themselves in the minds of a human being trying to get around the system and say, yeah. why don't we actually see what happens if we look at this and this and this and what that whole process looks like? Yeah. So, uh, our perception is that the human analyst plays a very big role in this. Uh, so the industry in general has been moving towards uh, machine learning, and uh, so have so have we in that sense. Uh, we've been working with machine learning models uh, over the last uh, three years, uh, more or less, when we started uh, our first machine learning models. But um, we still rely on analysts, especially for if, if you're looking at launch. When the merchant is uh, entering a new scenario, they might not have uh, enough data uh, to perform uh, their models on their side. And perhaps uh, we might need to, wait, uh, to gather some, some information before our models can actually perform for that merchant. So um, we strongly rely on analysts and we recommend that the merchants uh, have analysts on their side as well to have a closer look and to explore data um, the data that they can collect uh, in, in, in many different ways. So um, it, it, for merchants that, that don't have their fraud teams, they essentially rely on us to do that work for them. And that's what our team does, uh, especially for launches. Uh, our team analyzes uh, the info, all the information that that merchant processes through us. And uh, we, we tend to look at different combinations of, of data points. So we always stress with our merchants that uh, the more data that they can share, the, the, the more effective will be our team, especially helping them out navigating this, these new scenarios. Gotcha. Now, I think we completely agree. It is definitely important to continue to build the machine learning. It's amazing technology, without a doubt. At the same time, we also feel that humans still remain the best source for outlier cases where maybe something's getting through the machine learning and you're just seeing rates that you should not be seeing of chargebacks or you're seeing sales decline more than you should because you're turning away a lot of perfectly valid orders and sometimes you just need good old-fashioned human sleuthing to go in there and yeah. say what's going on here Exactly. Maybe we could think of something that we would do if we were a fraudster that would slip by and let's exactly. And that's 
And that would be missing from the, the machine learning side. You don't have the explanation of what's, what's the underlying fraud that's happening uh, and understanding the factors that, that are going, uh, that are taking place. So that's, uh, that's where the analyst really uh, helps out uh, in understanding what's going For on sure. in the end. I've said on this podcast before, I am a human and I know many humans. So it's <laughs> usually easier for me to think about all the terrible ways that people can try to operate than a, a computer would possibly do. Yeah. So hopefully someday that won't be the case, but uh, until that happens, I guess that's where we're at. So let's get it. You got another one? How many stories do you have? You got a ton here. This is great. Um, so maybe I can share another one uh, that's uh, also uh, sh shows some of the things that we are seeing in these emerging markets uh, as well uh, that have shifted uh, through the years. So um, again, I'm looking at Latin America and uh, Maybe a few years ago, there was a lot of difference between the, uh, the countries. So Brazil would traditionally have a very high chargeback rate. Even before e-commerce, uh, Brazil was notorious in that there was a lot of physical credit card fraud happening. Um, I, I've been a, I'm a Uruguayan. I've lived in Uruguay for a very long time. Uh, and uh, for us, it was very well known that if you went to Brazil, you really had to be very careful about uh, your credit card being stolen or being uh, cloned. So, um, and that's something that did not happen in my country. Uh, there are a lot of countries in Latin America where fraud levels are really, uh, really low in comparison. And what we've seen is that through the years, as merchants started moving into the online space, uh, the, the level of fraud and the fraud activities that are happening in these countries, uh, the, the practices are being spread out. So uh, some practices that used to be common in Brazil are now very common in Chile and other countries that were previously considered to be safe. Uh, take, for example, uh, one of the things that happened uh, last year, there was, uh, there was an incident where Anonymous uh, published some uh, details, personal details and credit card details of uh, some politicians in Brazil, like Bolsonaro, the president of Brazil, and some very high-level, uh, high-ranking uh, politicians. Uh, and... Of course, uh, the moment that that was published, uh, we started. Uh, everybody started seeing a surge in transactions with uh, these details, right? But the the interesting thing here is that uh, we actually started seeing more transactions coming through Chile than in Brazil. The first transactions arrived from from Chilean merchants, uh, and actually that was a even that was the highest volume of of transactions. Um, so so. You see a lot of collaboration between uh, gangs and between uh, individuals in, in, in countries in Latin America. And uh, the schemes that are happening in Brazil are quickly being spread out to, to other countries, even Uruguay, that's uh, relatively safe. Um, I'm interested on that topic a little bit more, even though it's maybe a slightly off from what we've been talking about, how you mm -hmm. see the collaboration going on between these groups and we know that it goes on on the dark web and we know that sometimes even offline people are collaborating but i'm just curious to to get your thoughts on that and how you go about trying to maybe stay one step ahead of these people or do you monitor their conversations and if you do how are you doing that what are you looking for anything it's not a concrete question maybe but anything that you can mm -hmm talk about with this sure. issue of collaboration? Sure. So one thing about collaboration uh, in, in these markets is that since there's very little regulation on the topic, uh, it's not even necessary to go into the dark web. 
many of these gangs operate uh, in plain sight. So uh, you could log into Facebook or they would have a WhatsApp group or uh, Telegram groups, but uh, the, the, the information on how to get to those groups is open and public. Uh, so that's, uh, I think that's kind of a difference in what you see from other, other countries in that in these markets, uh, the, the fraudsters would reach out to a larger audience if they kept their, uh, their communications and their marketing, uh, in plain sight. So it's not very difficult to, to reach out to, to these services. And, uh, on our end, uh, well, we try to, to follow as much as possible uh, all the, the, the information that's being collaborated, uh, that's being shared, uh, but we mostly focus on what's going on in the open space uh, because that has the, the, the highest likelihood of having an impact on your operations uh, rather than looking into, into what's going on in the deep web. Uh, of course, the deep web might have some more details on, on the specifics of each, uh, each fraud scheme that might be going on. Uh, there are a lot of uh, kind of professionalized uh, uh, fraudsters working in that space. But uh, in most cases, the, the typical frauds that we are seeing are openly communicated in, in social networks and so on. So uh, that's where we try to focus our attention to. Gotcha. So I feel like I would be remiss in this discussion if we didn't dive more into the idea of false positive declines. and. I feel like this has been a topic since I came into the industry. And so in some ways it's very depressing that we have to continue to talk about it because I wish that merchants would get the message that the false positive declines are worse for, to your bottom line than the chargebacks are. And from our end as a publication, we try to spread awareness that chargebacks feel like theft and they're painful. But if you're mm -hmm. really looking at it clinically and analytically on your bottom line, you are losing almost always going to be losing more money from over adjusting to the chargeback pain and turning away good customers. So I want to hear from you since you're in these emerging markets where this problem is the most acute, what you tell merchants about this, how you try to get them to understand that it's a bigger issue than chargebacks and how you suggest to them that they go about becoming more comfortable with the idea of allowing themselves to sell more and take some of those chargebacks within reason with the understanding that they're actually making more money by processing more good orders. Well, actually, uh, what we've seen is it, it, it's happened in a different way for us. Uh, in general, most of our merchants or the merchants that we work with are very aware of this concept that um, they want to maximize uh, sales as much as possible. So they want to try to uh, keep their chargeback levels low, but they aim for a high conversion. So um, the way we approach it is that um, we try to work with our merchants to get approvals as high as possible uh, while trying to keep uh, chargebacks uh, restricted because we don't want to be... Um, so we, of course, don't want to have too many false positives, but at the same time, we don't want to be too lax in our controls because that eventually has an impact on their approval rates as well. So you need the merchants need to think about this in a long-term situation, uh, because of course, if you're too lax, uh, sorry, if you're too strict with your controls, uh, you will have a lot of false positives. Your chargebacks will be low, but at the same time, the effect that that has on the acquirers, on the other hand, is that 
the acquirers will not set up blocks to prevent uh, transactions from going through. If he can't control for fraud, if the merchant does not control for fraud and the processor is not able to control for fraud, then what will happen is that the acquirers and the issuers will do that in, in, that, in your place. So you definitely want to avoid that, that type of scenario. For sure. So I guess to finish off, I want to get to that issue of, I'm sure you've worked with merchants who are at that line where they mm -hmm. were in the high risk category and they were in danger of not being able to process credit card transactions anymore. Give me some of your war stories there. What do you tell people to do? What's the first step when you have an issue that's become that severe? How do you not overreact? I'm curious to hear how you handle those types of scenarios. Yeah, well, uh, it's difficult. Uh, it, it really is. Uh, when you have a problem merchant, of course, uh, you do try to take uh, as much action as, as possible to try to uh, block those those fraudulent uh, transactions. And what we do in those cases, we really work closely with them to try to get in as much data as possible. What usually happens with these merchants is that often they're not sharing uh, as much data as they they could in that scenario. So we try to work with them to, first of all, try to get that information on our side so that we can improve the way that we can block transactions on their end uh, and try to remediate as quickly as possible uh, once the situation has been taken into control uh, to try to speak with our issuers and acquirers and say, look, th these are all the steps that we've taken with this merchant and try to push for uh, improved approval rates on their end. Uh, so it's it's kind of those two steps, but the, it it really takes a lot of work, um, and we often we really don't want to get to that point uh, without much. Do you find that the issuers are actually open to the idea of discussing it with you? Because that's actually new to me. I always thought that it was extremely clinical. That if you're over the threshold, that's it, you're done. But it sounds like you might be able to advocate on people's behalf. I've never really heard that before. Yeah, it's it's it, it's it is difficult, um, and we uh, we try to get uh, the communication flowing with as many issuers as possible. Uh, but in in every case, you have to have a good explanation of uh, the type of uh, you have to make a good case for that. Um, so it, having that conversation with them and explaining the type of merchant that's processing through these accounts uh, and the, the controls that they that you currently have set in place. Um, will definitely uh, unblock some situations where uh, issuers have set up uh, very restrictive controls. Because in their end, uh, on their side, they also don't want to block uh, their customers uh, uh, from using their credit cards on, their, on, on these sites because uh, they will essentially go to another bank and use uh, another bank's credit card or, or payment method. So um, it's, it, they're, they're in for it as well. Uh, in terms of making sure that their customers have a good experience. So we talked a lot about Latin America here. I just, before you go, I feel compelled to ask you if you see a lot of difference still between different jurisdictions, not necessarily in, in kind of the same geographic area, but if mm -hmm. there is truth to the idea that what goes on in maybe a high-risk jurisdiction, even in, in Europe or in Africa, uh, is similar or different if it's a monolithic enterprise to try and prevent these things or if if you are seeing different things across different jurisdictions so the answer is really a mixture of both uh, i would say that uh, the the types of fraud that you see in these regions 
are not very different from the ones that you see in in other in other markets. Uh, certainly, there's a there are there are slight differences, and you might see a specific variants to some of these schemes that happen in a particular country. But overall, uh, the types of frauds that you see are very uh, general. So, if you have a fraud solution in place that works for uh, for another market, it it is still likely that it will work for new markets new markets okay. as well. Uh, but there are some some details, like for example, if your if your solution or your approach relies heavily on address verification, uh, you need to be aware that that doesn't work in emerging markets. That's very specific to uh, some markets. And if you're too reliant on that, or if you're reliant on on solutions like 3DS, which in Latin America is not uh, is not uh, in in most cases it's not a really viable option, uh, then definitely uh, the approach needs to be different. Amazing. Well, why don't you tell everyone where they can find you on the web, Carlos? Thank you so much for joining us, and then we'll sign off. Sure. Uh, yeah, you can definitely reach uh, out to me through LinkedIn, um, and uh, as well, if uh, you can also reach out to us through our DLocal website. And we'll have all the uh, links and everything in the the show notes so that everyone can just get it at one click. Well, we really appreciate you being on the podcast, Carlos, and. It's such an important topic for especially small and medium sized merchants. And we love to make sure that we're providing help to those people as well. Uh, it's mm-hmm. very emotional, I think, for people, this subject, because when you have merchants that are more attached to their business, they're not as corporate and they are trying to do this on their own and trying to grow their business. It's a very exciting time. And I think that there's a lot of pain surrounding this topic of getting into these high-risk markets where there is a lot of opportunity, but also a lot of risk. So I really appreciate you coming on the podcast to give everyone some great information about how they can do that more safely and grow their business. Thanks, Bradley. It's been really great to be here. All right. Take care. Bye.